Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 7, issue 350. That's a lot. Final Fantasy 7, we've got there at last. Probably one of our most requested podcasts when we started. And here we are seven years later, just seven years later. Now you can all go back to asking for Skyrim, if people still care about that. You can play along with the show, but you can't at the moment because... We don't know what's happening next. The next year's podcasts are going to be decided very soon and will be announced shortly. But keep your eye on canarince.com and our social media channels for updates. You can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash canarince, and get every show next year a week earlier than non-subscribers and in many cases extended. And an extra monthly show as well and you get our format specials three months early too starting with our Game Boy show which is recording at the end of December as well you can also donate via PayPal there's a button on the homepage if you want to but you don't want the extras you just want to show the love by tipping virtual coins in our hat also great and we have two other podcasts to keep you going while we're away for just a few weeks Sound of Play on Wednesdays and The Sausage Factory on Fridays it's all Kane and Rince curated content so if you like this you may very well like those subscribe, review and rate to this and those on any podcast app or channel platform you use and as I say follow us do on social media Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and you can look out for the next 50 games we've got coming up six of which you can pretty much guess <laughs> work it out so joining me Leon Cox in issue 350 are Joshua Garrity hello there Leah Haydu. so hey Yuffie's dad is kind of a jerk huh <laughs> spoilers uh, I, maybe not no. yeah, kind of nah <laughs> so we'll, we'll issue the spoiler warning I didn't warning say why <laughs> that's true that's true yeah he's, he's yeah it's not as bad as you're thinking if you've never played the game probably uh, and Thomas Thomas Quilfelt Hello, I cannot believe I'm here. I know it seems funny doing a spoiler warning for Final Fantasy VII, probably the biggest plot point we'll talk about and has been spoiled pretty much consistently for the last 21 years, but there it is. (laughs) Square developed this game, as you know. It was released by Square in Japan, by Sony, the rest of the world. The PC version, if you'll recall, was released by Eidos Interactive in America and Europe, and that company got swallowed up into Square Enix some time ago. So the director was the returning Yoshinori Kitase, who had previously worked on uh, Final Fantasy V as a field planner, event planner and scenario writer, was then promoted to director for Final Fantasy VI. And I think that went quite well by most people's reckoning. So he got to carry on with Final Fantasy VII. Uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, of course, remained the producer. Uh, So the development commenced in 1994. Three distinct versions were started at various points. There was even some early Silicon Graphics workstation footage that people assumed was going to result in a Nintendo 64 game continuing Final Fantasy's lineage on the NES and Super Nintendo. But as it turned out, decisions were made internally Uh, regarding the direction of the game that meant that they decided Square to adopt the CD platform that was available on the PlayStation and not on the cartridge of the N64. There is a lot of 
stuff that has been written about the development of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, there's a Retronauts podcast. There is a, a verbal history by Matt Leone on the uh, Polygon website. So I would recommend uh, reading that. We need to focus because we do have a limited amount of time on the things that we can do that the other platforms, the other outlets can't do, which is talking about our own experiences and those of our listeners. But just to say before we move on that it, was one of the most expensive games made at the time with a staff of around 120 an estimated budget of 45 million dollars and a marketing budget of 100 million dollars it was released for the ps1 in japan where no doubt there were a lot of people who bought their playstations to play it January 31st, 1997 the north american version arrived in september 97 and in europe in PAL territories, it was November 1997. Let's start with a forum post from T-Bone254, who says, Final Fantasy VII rests firmly at number one on my list of favourite games. The graphics haven't aged well, character models are inconsistent in cutscenes, some use the blocky overworld character models and some use the more detailed combat models. Sure, all this would be a problem for me today, but back when it was released... I didn't care. The graphics at the time were revolutionary to me, so I assumed the graphical discrepancies were necessary. I really didn't have any idea about the poor translation to English. Sure, some of it sounded a little odd to me, but it was certainly manageable. And as for the story being convoluted, a second playthrough cleared up most of that. I was 14 when I was first able to play through 7. A friend of mine introduced it to me before, after he re uh, received it as a Christmas gift. I was awestruck. I had never seen anything like this before. Prior to this, my go-to games were Mario, Zelda and a few beat-em-ups. Great games, for sure, but none of them compared to this. Those games were simple and straightforward. 7 had a complex story with characters that had nuance and a range of emotions, and the music was like nothing I had heard before in a game. Final Fantasy VII is my all-time favourite game. On the back of the case there is a description that perfectly sums up the game for me. What begins as rebellion against an evil corporation becomes much more, and what erupts goes beyond imagination. Now, I sh I'm sure some of us also have strong memories of adopting Final Fantasy VII. I can't remember where we were with the series for each of us, so um, obviously we've been doing this whole series. Leah, you've been on every show so far. So I have. Final Fantasy VII, do you remember when it I came out, September 97 or not? So not exactly. I um, it, it was my first Final Fantasy game. It was not my first JRPG, but it was pretty close. When mm. I was playing games when I was younger, I didn't really I, I don't know why. I, I didn't necessarily avoid them intentionally, but I uh, never really got into JRPGs as a genre. And then when I went to college in um, dating myself uh, around uh, 99, I bought uh, the first console that I bought for myself with my own money was a Nintendo 64. And, you know, of course, that was not a new console at that point, but I played Paper Mario. And uh, loved it, just loved yeah. everything about it. And my boyfriend at the time said, well, if you like that, then maybe you should try Final Fantasy. And I said, well, okay, sure, of course. And so the game that he, uh, that he got me started on was Final Fantasy VII. And uh, yeah, since then, I've played it through several times on uh on multiple different platforms um and uh most recently i have been playing i uh, haven't quite finished it yet but the ps4 uh port uh that 
I guess was released relatively recently. Three uh, years, amazingly, but yes. Wow, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> relatively recently. Yes. Then. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I've played. Um, I've played the Steam version, which I, I think the PS4 version is based yes. on, mm-hmm. um, and you know, multiple other uh, ports and versions and consoles and and uh, what have you. Uh, so I I would say that I know this game pretty well. Um, as to uh, what exactly I love and don't love as much about it, we'll get into. But uh, yes, I this is. Um, a, a pretty significant point in the Final Fantasy series as a whole for me and in JRPGs in general as well. And for Square Enix. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, Square Soft. Yes. Uh, so, Thomas, you desperately wanted to come on this particular podcast. So I'm going to imagine you were there in November 97 in PAL territories. Yeah. So I actually have up on my screen, which obviously people can't see, the May 97 uh, issue of CVG, yes, uh, Computer and Video know, Games. Uh, it's my yeah. first games magazine I ever picked up. It had so- oh, Sung Mina wow. from Soul Blade on the front. Anyway, yep. um, I came across this double page spread of Final Fantasy VII and it was it just immediately caught my imagination. The colour and the oddness of this very odd Japanese game. All of the menus you can see in the screenshots are all in Japanese. And yeah, uh, uh, similar to T-Bone is saying, um, a friend got it before I did, and I just slavishly went round their house and, and stared at the gawped at the screen as they they finished the Midgar section and then got into the world map. And uh, I couldn't wait to get it, and I got it, you know, borrowed his copy, play it, got my own a week later, and um, gosh, yeah, I must have completed it ten or eleven, twelve, uh, ten or eleven times across. Oh. Was he PS One, uh, PS Two with the tiny little graphical upgrades? PS Three, I started on Vita. I've completed the iPad port, which is no easy feat because of the lag. The ten frames per second on the world map on the uh, uh, in the iPad port is it's a disaster. Uh, and then you, and then the PS Four um, port last year. Probably my favourite piece of media work, um, especially the soundtrack has been incredibly influential um i now work in the kind of space between video games and and music and uh, in large part to noboru matsu's score so yeah it's, it's had a profound influence on me yeah i've totally lost to it really so if you get any useful criticism out of me i'd be very surprised uh, hopefully we can provide some of that and uh, and our listeners as well. So I had played some JRPGs by this point. I played uh, Zelda and Secret of Mana. I don't think I'd played anything with quite the classic traditional Japanese uh, combat setup with the enemies on one side and the heroes on the other and the sort of quite that, that very rigid turn-based type stuff but I was aware of it I think maybe I dabbled in a couple of games that that featured this sort of combat so it wasn't completely alien and then from that same period when I was playing games like Secret of Mana which we covered earlier this year I believe Superplay magazine was spending several pages an issue pretty much talking about Final Fantasy 3 or in fact 6 the US version of Final Fantasy 6 known as Final Fantasy 3 And it was heartbreaking to me that that game was not available in Europe. I didn't have an import-enabled Super Nintendo, so I was just mooning over these wonderful screenshots and all this incredibly lavish praise that this Final Fantasy 3 slash 6 was receiving. So a couple of years later, when it 
became apparent that Final Fantasy VII was going to get a worldwide release. They were going to synchronise the numbering system and everyone was going to finally get to play it. I was absolutely stoked that that was going to happen. So, yeah, it was uh, on my radar from whenever it was announced pretty much and I bought it day one. I don't remember the act of buying it. It's not one of those, but I remember the evening of taking it home. I remember loading up for the first time, the intro coming on, that famous intro, that famous music. I remember being annoyed because my girlfriend at the time had just put a wash on and it was quite loud in the, in the flat and it was kind of ruining the moment um, but we soon uh, we soon put that slight squabble behind us and played it together for the next however long month month and a half I never finished it though we got to the final showdown and as many people have done we came a crop of the first attempt on the very last battle with with Sephiroth uh, the one winged angel battle and it was one of those where I'd we'd managed to eke it out for hours and then we die you know got got wiped and she went back to it and not only finished it but she also replayed the game and got the gold chocobo and knights of the round and all that kind of stuff I just never got round to playing that final boss again I bought the game later an American import copy when I had a an import enabled PS1 so I could just get that little bit of extra uh, screen real estate and speed out of the game because the PAL version wasn't optimized at all not you know as, as games go it's not the worst one for having a PAL a bad PAL conversion but it it still meant that the image was squashed and everything was a little bit spongier to play so I bought that started it again also never finished it I can't remember where I got up to so uh, I jumped at the chance when the PS4 version finally came out and I finished it last night I have finished I have completed Final Fantasy 7 I managed to avoid the end sequence for 21 years and I've now seen it well done uh, I, am, I only used the I used that there's there's three extra options. There's avoid random battle. I use that sparingly in situations where I didn't want a random battle, which is why they put it in there. There is a special option which you can refill your gauges, basically. Now, that's the only major cheat. I used that once very early on when I went into a battle underleveled, and then I made sure I never used that again because uh, it would have just meant a bit of grinding and then redoing it. But what I did use was the three times speed a lot uh, I played a lot of the game at 3x speed and boy, it doesn't half make it fly by. So uh, that definitely coloured my experience. But um, but I, yeah, I finished it. Hey, Josh, you are the youngest. Did you play Final Fantasy VII as a tiny child? <laughs> um, I did a bit. So I, I was I was seven uh, when Final mm. Fantasy uh, VII came out. Oh, hey, that's funny. Um <laughs> So um, this was around the time um, when me and my brother had a PlayStation, um, but I wasn't as into video games as um, I would end up being. We weren't aware of Final Fantasy, uh, Final Fantasy at all or had any kind no. of excitement for it. it the, the reason why we ended up with a copy is because along with um, Abe's Odyssey and... Uh, Dino Crisis, which my dad played five minutes of and thought, actually, maybe not one for the kids. <laughs> um, and um, uh, he he got us Final Fantasy VII. Um, the, re the reason why he got us uh, Final Fantasy VII is because he heard that the majority of the game was in text and there was a lot of text in the game. Reading's and, good. And, yeah, no, that was it, yeah. yeah. It was the... Yeah, I mean... Yeah. 
it it would it would have been good for me and Nathan to have have something where we're where Aww. we're expected to read a lot. And um, mm. if he had known quite how rough the localization um, <laughs> is, maybe he would have yeah. uh, thought about that uh, a second time. But anyway, uh, he tried it on us. Um, at the time and uh, it didn't work out me and my brother were much more enamored with Abe's Odyssey um, also Tekken 2 D- yeah it wasn't the right time uh, for me back no. in 1997 gosh no w- what ended up happen- happening was years later um, so probably like 2002 2003 when I was um you know, really young teenager, just about to go into uh, high school, I I gave it a second look because a bunch of my friends were saying, oh man, like you had this game and you haven't played it. Come on, dude, you've got to, you've got to, you've got, you've got to get through this. And then I spent like a summer of, of that year just going through the whole thing and I fell in love with it and not only did I fall in love with it you know Final Fantasy 7 is the reason kind of the reason why I'm on this podcast at all this is what kickstarted my interest in the medium and since then I've re- replayed the game several times um um, mainly re- actually going back to the PS1 version um, um yeah so that's my history <laughs> lowest form of wit from the forum says i feel i almost lost my job in the 90s because of final fantasy 7 from the moment the sector 7 plate fell and killed all those innocent people i was hooked and i couldn't stop playing as i wanted to know how the story would develop i played for long periods each night until silly hour in the morning and this affected my professional performance at work the next day the game sparked my interest for strong narrative-led titles and the final fantasy series in general and Mad Sox says, I remember vividly when this game came out. My college coursework suffered immensely thanks to this game, but it was well worth it. Uh, so the international version arrived in Japan uh, October 1997. This brought over a lot of the improvements that were made. Uh, there were there were a lot of changes made in the localization, but there were also some improvements in made in the however many months between uh, Japanese and American original releases, including on-screen indicators to show where you were and points of transition and stuff like that on the sometimes indistinct pre-rendered backgrounds. Um, so uh, there were a few yeah little bug fixes and stuff, although weirdly they still left in some incomplete quests and stuff like that, which are still there to this day. Uh, Ashman86 from the forum says, I felt the impact of Final Fantasy VII's existence long before I ever actually got to play it. As a kid, my dad and I would sometimes while away the time by browsing the Media Play, a now defunct chain of retail stores here in the States, down the street. We typically didn't plan to buy anything, but the internet wasn't what it is now and finding a new release in the store always felt exciting and special i remember a massive poster hanging high up at the back of the store of cloud his buster saw drawn gazing up at a maca reactor that's probably my earliest memory of the game now that i'm thinking about it eventually a friend invited me over to his house and shocked as he was that i'd never played a final fantasy game or anything he deemed a proper jrpg he sat me down at his playstation to check out final fantasy 7 and i was immediately enamored with the narrative approach the game took Although the game got a port to the PC, I didn't actually play it until years later, after I'd already finished and fallen in love with Final Fantasy VIII, also on the PC. 
I don't know how many others played the game on the original PC port. You controlled the game using the number pad on your keyboard and you ran by holding the zero key. My thumb still has a callus from the hundreds of hours I spent on the game. Final Fantasy VII is seminal, that much is certain. It's a juggernaut in the world of not just JRPGs, but the entirety of video gaming. It's a game whose impact can't be understated, but it also will never be able to live up to its own legacy. I've seen younger gamers go back to Seven expecting something mind-blowing, only to walk away feeling disillusioned. They don't understand why it was, why it is, special, and how could they? It's a poorly translated mess of a game at times. Barrett's an offensive Mr. T stereotype. The subplot about Sephiroth clones is disjointed at best. The FMV videos look like they're decades older than those we saw in Final Fantasy VIII just a few short years later, and the simple polygonal character models out of combat clash jarringly with the serious tones of the game's story, which isn't to say they're not charming in their own way. Frankly, I'm not even sure how much new ground it breaks after its own predecessor, Final Fantasy VI, which had already shown how well a game could tell a story. But it touched a generation of gamers profoundly. Maybe it was just a happy coincidence. Maybe Final Fantasy VII just landed at the right time, as the PS1 was opening the gates wide open for gamers who hadn't grown up with the 16-bit consoles or were too young to appreciate Final Fantasy VI's storytelling. But it shaped us as gamers, and maybe as people. Eris's death, Red Thirteen howling by his petrified father, the burning of Nibelheim, the showdown with the one-winged Sephiroth. These scenes are as vivid to me as the day I played them. For us, the children of the 90s, I wonder if Final Fantasy VII resonated in a way that other games couldn't, with its focus on taking an industry hell-bent on destroying the world for profit. Or, perhaps it was in its distinctly eastern take on the afterlife for a generation of young people who were only just barely old enough to come to terms with what loss meant for them. I'm rambling now, so I'll wrap up. Final Fantasy VII isn't my favourite game of all time. It's not even my favourite Final Fantasy game. But I don't for a minute believe it was overrated. And I know that even now, after at least a half dozen complete playthroughs, I could sit down and completely lose myself in the game all over again. The game reviewed very well at the time. Perhaps not off the charts, stellar, because there were some naysayers, I think probably from outlets that weren't familiar with the tropes of the genre. But that was obviously reflected by some of the people who bought it as well. So 92% was the average score. But looking at user reviews today, we've got 9.6 on per square for the PS1 original, 9.2 for the PS4 version. IMDb, people love it, 9.5. And on Moby Games, which tends to be slightly more critical, it's a 4.2 out of 5. Two million copies were sold within the first three days of release and by August 2015, so we can add some more on to this because there's been more versions since then, but the most recent figure was 11 million plus. Kiss Mammal from the forum says, though I had heard about games like Final Fantasy 3 and Front Mission during the 16-bit era in Superplay magazine, I was completely unfamiliar with the JRPG genre because so few of them had made it onto the European market at the time. I got sucked in by the hype surrounding Final Fantasy 7 and bought the game day one, and was immediately drawn into the steampunk setting and the distinctive-looking characters, but found the quirky turn-based battles very strange and off-putting. As funny as it is to think of now, I'd only ever really played action games up to this point where the object was always to avoid damage at all costs, so a battle system where it was often impossible to avoid getting hit instilled a kind of anxiety and discomfort in me while playing. Hmm. To make matters worse, I didn't understand the materia system at all and didn't even fully grasp the concept of levelling up. 
As a result, I basically avoided combat whenever I could by fleeing from all in enemy encounters <laughs> instead of fighting. Of course, this eventually led to me getting completely and utterly stuck later in the game, as my team were too underpowered to take on a boss because I'd neglected to stagger my saves. I couldn't even backtrack to the nearest town to recuperate. To my embarrassment, I then went around proclaiming the game to be a load of overhyped rubbish. It was only much later when a very close friend raved about his experience playing the game that I decided to give it a second chance. And this playthrough is when the game not only clicked, it became a full-blown obsession, which I played constantly. Whole evenings and weekends disappearing in the blink of an eye until I eventually completed it, unlocking the secret characters and breeding a golden chocobo along the way. I suspect the game is partially responsible for my slightly <laughs> underwhelming GCSE results yep. due to the amount of time I spent ploughed it ploughed into it when I should have been studying. Beastwood from the forum says for me and many other British kids this was the moment that it all changed. I couldn't even get past the first boss initially. The gameplay was so alien to me. Through word of mouth and fifth hand guides I improved and eventually managed to topple Sephiroth and save the world. Sure, this game has its daft moments or dull gameplay sections, but for a beautiful moment in the late 90s, this game started something special in the West that hadn't been there before. For that, I believe it deserves all the accolades, the spin-offs, movies, remakes, YouTube documentaries. I've seen some cynical an analysis in recent times, but maybe you just had to be there to feel it. What a feeling it was. Hear, hear, that's... Very well said, but no one deserves those spin-offs or the movie, believe me. <laughs> Shadowless Kick says Final Fantasy VII has the dubious honour of being the origin of my passionate spoiler evasion tendencies. Well before the game hit the US, while surfing a gaming message board via my Netscape browser, I stumbled on a sound file someone posted from the game entitled Aerith Death Theme. That really sucked. That's like when they released the uh, the soundtrack to The Phantom Menace before the film came out and it had uh, Qui-Gon's funeral as, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, one of the, as one of the tracks. Nice one. Uh, Alex79UK, also on a forum, says, This was the first Final Fantasy, or indeed the first JRPG that I ever played. And what an incredible introduction to the genre it was. In a way, it almost spoiled other games for me for a good while after. I borrowed Final Fantasy VII from a friend of my brother's who had dismissed it as rubbish. But after reading reviews in the gaming press at the time, my interest was most definitely piqued. I was spellbound right from the introduction, the camera panning through Midgar, giving you a glimpse of the world you would spend hours exploring. I loved the way it threw you right into the action as Cloud jumped from the train right into battle. Those first few hours were amazing. I really felt like I was playing one small part of a band of outlaws, renegades fighting for their city. So many great memories, discovering all the different summon creatures, developing materia to its uppermost levels and selling them for a ridiculous amount of gill, riding motorbikes and snowboards. But one of the best in-game distractions for me was breeding the chocobos. My girlfriend and I had a game guide and spent hour upon hour trying to breed the holy grail, a golden chocobo. We finally managed it and used it to navigate to the area whereupon we could collect Cloud's ultimate limit break attack. We were unstoppable. That intro really was quite something. Uh, the CGI, CGI throughout the game obviously has dated, but I think the direction of that intro... Mm, very uh, special. And 
and and and the combination of the music, even though the music's that little bit tinny and reedy because it's kind of chip based, uh, it has such a very distinct sound. And that the bit where it cuts, it does those quick cuts to the train screeching into the station, uh, I still think that's um, that's just a really nice piece of animation, you know. And then and then it does throw you straight in after that that funny little shimmer that you get when it transitions from FMV to to in game backdrop which uh which has a nostalgia of its own that that funny little effect magical isopod from the forum says i think final fantasy 7's core themes are probably what sticks with me the most today as a kid growing up in the 90s i was weirdly obsessed with conservation and ecology i'd see the tv ads about the importance of recycling and water conservation the dangers of cfcs and acid rain even back then i had a very strong sense of justice there were evils in the world, mankind had its follies, but nothing was as profoundly insidious as harming the planet. Final Fantasy VII is not overtly a game about protecting the environment or corporate pollution or the prospect of global destruction. It's an intensely spiritual game that looks beyond the actions of mere humans and asks the player to see the world as a living network of death and rebirth. Our mortality is not ours alone, but rather an energy loaned from the planet. The cyclical nature of life, death and rebirth is not at all uncommon in Eastern religions. Indeed, most pre-Christian societies have their own views on what it means to live and die. In Rodnovery, if that's the right pronunciation, the pagan beliefs of the ancient Slavs, the circle of life is represented as a spinning wheel. The wheel is always in motion, but will always return to its origin. Everything follows this principle, night and day, the annual harvest cycle, and even life itself, rising from the bog to inevitably return to the bog. It's said that Tetsuya Nomura was coping with the unexpected death of his mother while this game was being made, and I think that visceral understanding of mortality really permeates this game from start to finish. Uh, Rumours persisted for years, this is true, following the game's release that the character Ares could be resurrected. Various insanely time-consuming methods were proposed and it was later claimed that it was only possible in the Japanese version by buying a rose when Cloud meets Ares at the beginning of the game and was cut from the US version due to time constraints. These were all finally put to rest when Tetsuya Nomura was interviewed about the making of the game by UK video games publication Edge magazine. He stated that the world was expecting us to bring her back to life as this is the classic convention but we did not we had decided this from the beginning Ares' death was intended in part to be a response to the dramatic cliche of the meaningful death which Nomura considered unrealistic Nomura has also always maintained that if the game is ever remade Ares will die again mm-hmm. that's from I the I don't see uh, how she IMDb. couldn't I mean that's yeah. such a yeah. pivotal plot point it's that, so important yeah, yeah. and yeah. I I, I This is certainly not the first time that a character, even a main character or a major character has died in a video game, but I think that it's certainly one of, if not the first time that a character that you've been allowed to kind of put so much effort into yeah. has yeah. It can be just permanently removed from your party with no warning. Um, yeah. And take yeah, some good I, gear I had with no her. idea. Yeah, I I did not. Um, yeah, oh yes, yes she does. Um, People I, always I, know if they play the game for the first time now, which means that they yeah. probably never will invest anything in their build of Ares unless they're going. There's actually one thing that they brought in with the trophy version of the game, which is you can get a trophy for getting her ultimate limit, limit break. break. Yeah. yeah. So there, so there's a reason, but that's not the same. That mechanically is not the same as emotionally. So. 
back, way back, you know, way back in the day when I played this for the first time, this did have an impact on me. I mm. knew about it beforehand, yeah. but the death really did have an emotional effect. But yes. um, on subsequent replays, and Leon, you're, you're kind of hinting, I, I think you hinted towards this, I... I I, my uh, love of um, Marys as a character has uh, has somewhat plummeted um, because she's really um, she's really basically stroking the the player's ego a lot during the majority of this campaign. The manic like, pixie dream girl. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's definitely the manic pixie dream girl mm. thing going on, and and I'm increasingly like, why the hell is Cloud so interested in Ares, who's just like in my feels game, fake. he's not. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. I think I think Tifa is a stronger character. Yeah, but yeah, I I mean I agree, but I and and there's obviously more connection between them. But I suppose you can make an argument that. There is there because this is a spiritual game, and this woman has this you know very great connection to the earth Gaia and all the spirits that she has some kind of actual you know like that there is that situation in life where you find yourself confused by your attraction to somebody and it's almost like like you know I don't like really like that much about them or whatever but there's something there's some kind of weird charisma or something that I, that I don't quite get maybe you can sort of read that into it um, yeah because she's magic woman basically she's you know I, su- I suppose with you know a more adult mind I just it felt like like Tifa's actually meaningfully trying to help you out like throughout the majority of the game um she was your best friend you know in childhood and and like it just feels like that was an actual like actual grown-up relationship between the two of but them Tifa gets a massive payoff with the the gameplay section later where you go into all the different memories and that's a yeah, really nuanced and layered kind of payoff for that so i, I feel like Tifa does get her due and then about as deep as Eris goes is, you know, there's a flashback where you see Cloud's mother or he visits his home in Nibelheim uh, if you go into that building and it flashes back to his mother. And I always got a, a vibe of like he's lying on the bed, kind of knackered or whatever. And that reflects the bit where he's lying in the flowers and Eris is sort of pottering around him and and uh, and tending to him, looking after him. So I always figured there was a little bit of weirdness going on there. Um I think what's what's interesting, just talking about the cast generally, I think what's interesting is that really there are only a few characters which I think are like make up the core of the narrative here. Like, yeah. I, I think Tifa, um, uh, Cloud, like Barrett, Barrett yeah. obviously, um, Aerith. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe a couple of maybe Katesif actually. You know, I'm thinking Somewhat about it. More but than, yeah. yeah, I would say. Yeah, but um, I love Red more. Thirteen, uh, but his a lot of his story does kind of end up feeling like Just a side up. wing. Like you could have taken that out. I'm glad they didn't because he is one of, love, if not I my favorite character. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I love him. Doesn't it come down to? I, mean, I, I quite a lot of people complain, and we might get onto the systems later. We will get onto the systems later, but people complain that you know it gets a bit flat later in the game because of material and uh, the way these characters aren't differentiated but for me I think as since this was of course my first JRPG I really loved that because I could pick 
the characters that I wanted to be with in the story. Uh, and for yeah. the most part, that was yeah. Barrett and Tifa. That feels like the sort of classic party. Canon. Although, of course, later, if mm. you're doing min-maxing, uh, I don't actually know the answer to this, but there's presumably a best party for... limit, And it comes down to limit breaks, doesn't it? It comes down to who's got the limit breaks with the most hits in it, like mm. um, Barrett's Ungar Max, uh, uh, Anger Max, whatever it's supposed to be, and that kind of thing. But I think if you're, you're not min-maxing, you're somewhere in the middle, you can pick a party of either the characters you like or that you think would be with cloud on each of these major steps in the story Mm. magical isopod chips in on sephiroth sephiroth is a compelling villain because in a way he's not really the main villain every step of the way this man has been a puppet he was created by uh, to be a military killing machine and when he discovers the nature of his creation he gives into the influence of genova and becomes a pawn for her ambitions as much as the guy is spoken about we rarely see him the majority of the physical encounters are actually pieces of genova projecting the image of sephiroth he has very few speaking lines and nearly all of them are in flashbacks the real villain in this story is shinra they are the ones killing the planet they are the ones that dug up genova and started using its body for experiments despite the warnings of the people who sealed it away and they are the ones that create Sephiroth. This is a very anti-corporate, anti-authority narrative that continually spotlights corporatism and the lust for power as the greatest evils in the story. There's the story of Barrett's village getting violently shut down by Shinra. There's people of Juno being poisoned by water polluted by Shinra. Almost every locale and personality in this game has been harmed by these guys in one way or another. And when it comes down to brass tacks, when the entire planet is about to be destroyed by a giant meteor, when there's giant Godzilla monsters destroying human settlements as a manifestation of the planet's rage, all Rufus Shinra can do is stare snidely out of his office window with the unspoken, unapologetic sentiment of, yep, I did this. That is something that I wanted to uh, to bring up uh, regarding Sephiroth is mm. you you kind of he's almost a trope by this point. Um, like when when you hear things about Final Fantasy VII or you know even just mm. Final Fantasy in general, you know you've got he's he is brought up as kind of this very dramatic character. He's in Kingdom Hearts as this big bad boss and everything, but it's easy to forget if you have. A lot of experience with this game or you know have, have played a lot of times he's actually really scary like mm. you from the beginning when mm. you uh when you start encountering him you don't as, as um as was just said in that um in magical isopods uh post there um you don't really see him very often uh, certainly not see in the, the early parts of, of the game. Yeah, you, you leads, see yeah. what he's done. You yeah. see, you know, so kind of the aftermath. Yeah. And yeah, and even in the very few instances where you do see him, and it's not in just a um, just a flashback, it's just, he is just so obviously leagues above you. Mm. And, you know, just there's nothing you can do about him at that point. And, you know, that's it's it is really intimidating. So by the time you actually get to fighting him, you know, it's they do not really pull a fast one on you here where it's actually a tree or whatever you know but uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a brilliant moment in the flashback when you get to calm which mm-hmm. is actually one of the weaker bits of pacing in the game for me because it is quite a long kind of flashback sequence mm-hmm. albeit gameplay um 
one of the ideas of this feeling like a journey for me like this epic journey but mechanically as well is when you're level one i think you've got 140 hp as cloud uh, and you fight alongside yeah. sephiroth and you see him do like three thousand damage and it's like whoa yeah. you know it's just it's this goal to be reached by the end of the game maybe mm. but uh, it was my first game i've ever played where numbers are coming out of people and it just yeah. seems so impressive and i think like he does a spell i think he he does like ice three all on some of the the things and the damage Mm. um uh, that comes up above their heads like lines up in one long thing so it just looks like one huge long white number and it's so impressive in my head it was all nine 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 even though it isn't as well so when you see it again it's like oh yeah actually we're gonna get to that sort of level and then right at the very end it puts you in a situation where you think you're going to have to actually have a a duel with him and in fact it's a pre-scripted sequence that plays out with Cloud's ultimate limit break whether you've collected it in the game or not but uh, but I was for a moment there having never completed the game before and having finally done the one winged angel fight I was like oh no <laughs> it's, that's, <laughs> so that I'm that still quite interesting because they've got higher day. they've got higher poly models for that fight don't they they look slightly different because it's a completely black backdrop so they've got more Polys yeah, they zoom in and, and you ca- you, yeah. you can win without using Omni Slash. I think if oh, really? you let him hit you, you counter, and then it just and then it just ends. Uh, Will from the forum, as we segue into a little bit more talk about the visuals, uh, makes a very interesting point. To me, Final Fantasy VII is linked to the sense of late '90s sophistication you guys discussed on your PlayStation One podcast. Will is obviously a patron. Thank you, Will. I remember being blown away watching the trailer on a big screen at our local theatre. Loading the game on a black-backed CD felt so different from banging a squat grey cartridge into a Nintendo console. This cyber futurism goes a long way to making some of the PS1-era graphics work for me, especially the smoothed PS4 version. Seven's blocky polygons look exactly the way cyberpunk authors had been telling us the digital future would. Presenting the characters as a set of synthetic cubes and cylinders also suits the story. If it was released as an indie title today, I can imagine critics raving about the brilliance of telling Cloud's story, of confronting his own alienation and lack of specialness by representing him as a literal <laughs> collection of generic building blocks. Is it that, that, I love that. Garud shading <laughs> that they use for the polygons? Go, yeah, that, go round. Yeah, that, we'll barely, go round, yeah. that didn't last the generation, you know. That it's such a rare thing. to. I think it's Grim Fandango yeah. and that's it that I can remember. Yeah. I I mean, I remember absolutely at the time, like we'd... We were st- I was still playing my Super Nintendo at this point and I, I loved 16-bit graphics in particular and I still do to this day and none of that has changed. And I remember playing Final Fantasy VII at the time and being blown away by the backdrops and the FMV but thinking that the character models were a bit goofy mm. with their big fat arms and their no hands and their no blocky hands. And so in a way, they haven't aged because they were already kind of crummy back then. But they... The, the animation is very similar to the way that the 16-bit and 8-bit even precursors were done. Very simple gestures. And, yeah, they do they do look aged. They always looked like some weird out-of-time thing. And I don't know. I think my major issue with the, uh, with the graphics is not necessarily that they are so blocky, but that they're inconsistent. Mm. Like, the in-battle models oh, are different totally, from the yeah. ones that you no, see in... Yeah, it's, it's just... It doesn't seem to... I'm sure there is some kind of... Consi- well, not consistency, but... There isn't. Some it kind betrays of, its 
well, some kind of reasoning behind why they well, use it betrays his development. Do, I think, but, yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And the fact mm. that some some of the CG cutscenes they're the different models. I think it it just goes back to the fact that they'd started developing this yeah. for one system and and with one creative vision and finished it on another mm. and with another. But and they didn't get think, back to because I really didn't like Final Fantasy VIII's kind of stick thin, kind of sort of realistic looking, but actually kind of bad character models and i don't i They're don't think it's until in the battle scenes, final fantasy 9 until when they really unite well they've mastered the playstation 1 haven't they and they've they've got a lot better at the cg uh but they kind of oh, yeah. homogenize everything and there's big there's fat characters and thin characters and tall characters and very colorful and it matches up with the cg a lot better but i think it took them two 3d games to get there uh, uh and then they sort of succeeded on the third i i personally think even Final Fantasy VIII has a kind of more cohesive oh, aesthetic. For sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think the the thing that this game suffers from for me is just feeling like it, like Leon said, like it, it feels like it doesn't know what machine it's going to be running on. So <laughs> yeah. you've yeah. got you've got models that would be best suited for a you know a variety of different uh, systems, and yeah, it just it. I, you know, as someone who's played it so many times and and have such a deep affection for it, I can't help but find it kind of endearing. Yeah. Even though, like, I can intellectualize it and go, yeah, this doesn't look that great. Like, I, the chibi cloud is kind of charming in his Mm -hmm. own little way now. And, yeah. um, And I I do think, yeah. And I do think the art direction. Um, when when viewed at a certain, from a certain angle, is really strong. Mm, like mm. I think um, the location design, I oh, think for example, is incredible. really really yeah. inspired. Like Midgar is, you know, as iconic as you know cityscapes in in a video game could be. Like that kind of like the the you know the layered design of like every you know the upper class people being at the you know the top uh bit and and mm. the the slums being below maybe yeah. you know a bit forced when it comes to like kind of you know the metaphor side yeah. of things like yeah. yes we're literally living on top of all the blocking poor out people. their sun yeah. uh, blocking out their sun. all of that but it's it's still visually really powerful mm. um and i think that that stuff kind of ultimately yeah. shines through even though it does look a bit silly at points uh the prof from the forum says i originally played this game around the time it came out i played some previous rpgs but more in the action rpg genre the likes of secret of mana illusion of time and secret of evermore as such a lot of the concepts introduced me uh, introduced to me in this game were new and confusing random battles and the atb system took some getting used to and the amount of equipment you could gather with all of its differing stats blew my mind of course what drew me in as i suspect drew many others in also were the cutscenes which at the time i had seen nothing like looking back now it seems bizarre that they were such a draw considering how rudimentary they appear even compared to final fantasy 8 but of course hindsight is always 2020 to be honest i didn't enjoy the gameplay much at the time and only continued playing to make it to the next cutscene and see what for the time was an amazing visual display i didn't have a clue what was happening in the story but by god those cutscenes look pretty fast forward to now and i recently finished another playthrough of the game to my surprise it's one of my favourites ever. 
I remember being particularly entranced with the Gold Saucer back mm. in 97. And actually, those mini games are all pretty ropey now, I would say. Uh, not that much fun in themselves. I, uh, yeah, I didn't spend any time on this recent playthrough setting high scores. Not but... a snowboarder, are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I got the controls. I, I the, the, yeah, exactly. Um, back then, it was like, wow, this is a game that's almost as, you know, looks almost if you squint as good as cool borders and doesn't play that much worse. But in 2018, those kind of things fall a bit flat. Um, but I remember adoring that funny little game with the Moogles where you feed them nuts, even though it's all you do, you just press the X button over and over again. Oh, you mean the worst the bit of the game? With... Well, I absolutely <laughs> loved it because it was so cute. It was so cute. And I love Moogles. Um, <laughs> the, the, but, motorcycle, yeah, actually, the motorcycle sequence was in- really impressive for the time, though. And yeah. um, it, the yeah. sub- it really doesn't look good. The, now, the difference <laughs> it really looks bad. The difference between that and the, the snowboarding section, the gameplay-wise, is awful. But the and the submarine section, you can finish within about eight or nine seconds if you just yes. hammer the missile yeah. button. But the motorcycle yeah. section, I thought, was absolutely spellbinding. And the fact that this this um, Midgar finishes as exciting as it starts with this, oh. you know, for the time you're going up the tower, so it's a bit diehard kind of thing, and then you you burst out the top of the tower after having done some tricky boss battles and splitting the parties up, and then there's this really exciting was at the time really impressive sort of 3D um, motorcycle game followed by another reasonably robust boss battle, and then this just moment of calm, and there's a, a lovely sunset. And um, and some incredible music, um, and then you're off into the world map. I just think that whole sequence, uh, graphically and pacing and story wise, uh, sold me on the game. That's what I. That's the bit I saw my my friend playing, and just I had to have the game. I had to borrow it off him. I had to get it as soon as quick as possible. Jobo Bonobo from the forum says, I quite like the graphics. I'm talking about the goofy character models. The low poly characters give them a strange Playmobil look that I find oddly charming and honestly gives the game a real unique visual identity. What some consider poorly aged visuals, I consider to be a fun, bizarre aesthetic, which has come about by accident. Seeing a blocky Barrett shake his club-shaped arm at Shinra is just endearing to me and gives me a newfound appreciation for the graphics of the PlayStation era. By complete accident, these graphics have become timeless in such a fashion that I would not want them to look any other way. That's kind of what, yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. Um, which, yeah, it's kind of surprising. Music is obviously a huge thing for Final Fantasy by this point already. The same composer has worked on all of the games up to this point, Uematsu. And uh, Jobo Bonobo says uh, Nobuo Uematsu did an incredible job with the composition here. While I was familiar with the classics such as Aeris Theme, One Winged Angel and Bombing Mission, the sheer diversity of moods and musical styles throughout the entire soundtrack has made me truly respect the immense talent of Uematsu and his contribution to music as a whole truly cannot be overstated. Stated, an absolute tour de force and, and in the the world map theme i think it, it's everything it's when you have done a whole midgar section and um there's actually one of my favorite pieces of music is just before you go into the world map everyone's just sort of moseying outside midgar and there's a a, mm. a queue i think it's called ahead on our way um and then you go on to the mid uh, to the world map for the first time and there's this sort of i think it's a seven or eight minute mini symphony mm. effectively mm. that goes mm. through it's orchestral but it starts in the uh, when you first go into the world map it starts in the the minor section of the of this um piece 
and it just it was spellbinding to me and and i'd sort of started to get into mm. classical music at the time i was playing in orchestras and yet um although this was 32-bit playstation sound card chip tune um just mm. the strength of the melody the arrangement is timeless when you hear an orchestra play it like the distant worlds recordings or the yeah. reunion tracks it it doesn't actually add anything for it to me i think he he nailed it absolutely the first time and this was a guy at the peak of his creative powers um mm. uh, you know final fantasy 8 is also is probably my favorite score over this just for sophistication reasons mm. but wow. um the fact that Uematsu deliberately limited himself uh, into what like the amount of uh, musical samples he would use because he hated long load times and he didn't want to burden the game with uh, extra load times and, and there's a really funny video of uh, him and Sakaguchi being interviewed where they talk about this about how egregious the loading time is for One Winged Angel um, but yeah just that the world map theme has everything for me and and the the best thing about this whole soundtrack pretty much is the melodies um, and it, you could say that about Star Wars for John Williams it's just these melodies that just get in your head okay they're looping so you have to hear them a lot but it's the, my favourite Final Fantasy battle theme and I've listened to all of them. It's, it's my favourite victory music. It's my favourite world map music. It's my favourite peaceful town music with calm. It, it, it's, it means mm. so, so much to me and a, and a lot of people, obviously. And it feels like Uematsu is absolute peak specifically to do with uh, writing melodies. Uh, also, apart from Kefka's laugh, I guess, in the Super Nintendo game, which is a kind of semi-pseudo-synthesized noise, this is the first game in the series where you really do hear human voices. Uh, you can hear a voice over the intercom when Sister Ray is about to fire a diamond weapon, uh, and there are other examples. Uh, you can hear them, uh, the residents of the slums screaming when the plate collapses. Oh, yeah. uh, there's some opera-style music playing in the Shinra Tower. Uh, one Winged Angel, of course, has the the choir, and you hear children's laughter at the very, very end of the uh, the epilogue sequence. Oh, the and creepiest get, sound yeah. of all. <laughs> it is, but I, I guess it's supposed to symbolise rebirth because there's also baby Red Thirteens, little Nanakis, uh, which I didn't know until yesterday. How cool is that? <laughs> I know that's so good. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, we've already talked a little about it and we've talked about it in the previous games in the series. Obviously, we need to watch our time. So let's just think about the the battles in this game and, the, you know, the holistically, the combat, the materia, the the equipment and the limits, uh, the limit breaks. Um, so for me, I yeah, I just think the limit, the materia system for me is still the most fun system of its type that I've played so far. Um, I've played most of the games in the series because of its flexibility, but also because materia looks nice. It's <laughs> shiny and it clicks in and out of those slots on your weapons in such a satisfying fashion. Um, yeah, I love it. And I still love the fact that through throughout having played this game on and off a few times over two decades i was still finding new and fun ways to experiment and mix and match going right up to the end of my finally completed playthrough yesterday and i know from you guys who have played this game multiple times you can do some insane stuff if you grind your materia and make the right combinations right oh yeah yeah tell me about and it, it it's not it's it's a bit of a shame that the game is kind of doesn't have the enemies or the pacing to support 
because by the time you get things like Final Counter and some of the more sophisticated support uh, support material, and that you reach dungeons where you can actually um, level this mm. stuff up to a really useful degree, there's nothing that can stand in your way by that point anyway. And whereas the Emerald and Ruby weapons are so such HP sponges, um, you might as well just follow yeah. the guide. Like there's some experimentation to be had there, but I feel like there's a gap. There's a kind of end game gap, if you like, between what you could do with creative stuff and then there being any enemies around or any challenges in the game to actually yeah. make it worthwhile. But still, um, it, it was only superseded by Final Fantasy XII's Gambit system for me as just being like you say, fun to tinker with and and crunchy to just get those material in and out and using the mm. quite mm-hmm. weird, like the arrange window within the menu system to kind of swap material between people. Um, it's a bit of a chore, especially when Can you be. have to use different characters at a different sport story bit. And you've got tons of yeah, them. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and when you lose yeah. your material heading into Wutai <laughs> or, or your material get all out of order and then you have to arrange them and then you have to go down this whole massive list. Standard, you know, video game yeah. menu play shenanigans but for, but i didn't know any better when i when i learned this game and read the guides and knew everything about it i didn't know any other jrpgs and i hadn't played any other games with systems like that and now i can't judge it against other games other than to say that later final fantasy systems weren't as compelling for me except um the uh, the gambit system like i say have you heard the good news about junctioning? <laughs> I, I just die. And I really yeah, I know. Yeah, hate it. <laughs> most most people are on your side from what I have heard, but uh we'll talk about that later. Uh the uh, what I wanted to say about the materia system is that it I believe that it has an edge on a lot of other systems coming up to this in that you don't really lock yourself into anything at any point with job mm. systems as much yeah. as i love them it is a lot mm. easier to invest a lot of time into a particular set of jobs and then if you decide that you want to try something else to kind of be at a disadvantage or to need to spend a lot more time with things materia you can swap around with little to no consequences in between fights or whatever you like because the materia itself although it does level up it doesn't lose that when you change it around just positionally yeah. um so so i think that that's it, it does encourage experimentation uh and and changing you know you don't have to lock yourself into you'll you will almost inevitably find a uh a basic setup that kind of works best for you uh but you don't you don't have to feel that that's all you can do if you decide that you want to completely change your your setup or you want to just change how you're going about things for one specific fight or one specific section, then you can absolutely do that. And you don't have to worry about um, kind of bringing yourself down because of it. And well, another thing I wanted to say, actually, uh, increasingly as you go through the game and pick up more and more summons, and there are a lot, it was one of the absolute treats visually of the game back in 97 mm. with the summons. And yes, you ended up using them probably too much and re- over relying on them and watching those animations play out very slowly over and over again. But I have to say that some of them still look great. Like the, it just because they're so beautifully uh, envisioned uh, and and realised. Like they they obviously are low poly and and the effects these days could be way more spectacular. But things like Bahamut Zero is just still a great again, just a great cinematic of animation. The poly, polygons might be a bit wobbly and basic, but the actual what's happening is still so cool 
for it's pretty great word. when you accidentally get a fat chocobo dropping out of the sky on some stuff <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> say that yeah yeah um, that w- w- one thing i wanted to discuss about the combat um, more generally is that i think final fantasy 7 does a really good job of addressing an issue that I really felt in Final Fantasy VI, mm-hmm. where in that game with the Esper system, uh, it was really easy because once a, once a character's learned the spells, they, they have those spells forever. And it doesn't matter if you unequip the Esper, they still have those spells. And uh, what would end up happen happening is you basically teach everyone in your party Ultima, and then the the you know the final uh, stages of the game is Ultima Fiesta 2019, <laughs> whatever. Like it just it's just Ultima, yeah. It's Ultima's hit left, right, and everywhere, um, and. I think what's great about the materia system, at least for you know, like a more casual player rather than you know an extreme player who wants to find every piece of materia in the game, is that it still allows you, while giving you a lot of flexibility and customize um, customizability with your party, it still makes you create roles within your party. Like yeah. Cloud, you know, I would make Cloud my offensive character. I would make um, um, Aerith, my healing character, um, because once you unequip the materia, you unequip the spells. Like, yeah, it forced you to think about that more tactically. Yeah, and there's a there's a um, clever little thing with that, isn't it? Where if you load up a character with magic and summon things, it actually really tanks their HP. Uh, and I, I, I didn't pay much too much yeah. attention to that at first, but that's actually quite a clever way of. Um, forcing you to make interesting decisions it's quite a subtle thing to do a lot of people i assume just ignore that stuff and don't even notice that it's taking a hit on their stats but um i always no, it's substantial i was pretty much halving yeah. uh, sid's hp yesterday by having him carrying all the bahamuts around with him so yeah it does make a big and there's the, like the ultimate materia you can't actually use the ultimate spell when you first get it that feels like a big snub to kind of min maxes on final fantasy 6 doesn't it it's like you get this you got to wake yeah, it basically and, yeah, and, yeah, and, it, and it really it. you know yeah. that, that one especially the more powerful magic really damage your hp when you load them up and you can't even use the spell i was using uh, w magic which allows you to do two spells and ultima and uh, alexander as well the holy summon uh, which is an optional one that you can miss to they were the two key weapons in in winning the game at the end by the yeah by the end of the game i think um an, another issue that uh, seven addresses from from six is um with six each character had a a unique ability um, and they were extremely effective in the early part of the game, but once you um, unlocked the espers, they became less important. There were certain characters like uh, Sabin who you still used his uh, used his blitz abilities right to the very end, but there are a lot of characters where you just ended up using the magic. What I think is great about the limit breaks is that even when you're at a point where you can just swap in magic and um, you know all that stuff like the limit breaks dick kind of dictate the value of the characters um long long after you've um 
you know, uh, unlocked Ultima and, and Counter and all of that stuff. Like, those limit breaks are still really, really powerful yeah. and really, mm. really useful um, in a way that the unique abilities of the characters in Final Fantasy VI were less so. And um, I think it's a, a, just a fantastic um, innovation for this title. Of, mm. Yeah, of, we should um, just say limit breaks are basically when your characters get aggroed eventually, they will do a, a nice attack and you can deliberately have them sit on those attacks so you can start a tough battle with everyone's limit breaks ready to go kind of thing. And there are four levels of them, each with uh, two, I think. Apart from the last um, one. Div- yeah, uh, right, yeah. And there's there's an ultimate one that you have to go sub-questing to find for each character that is that is very powerful. There's a, And there's nothing quite uh, like the dopamine rush of getting a limit break <clears> and then the little multicoloured bar kind of flashing up and you're like, yes, come on, let's do it. Symbols popping out everywhere. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, um, and yeah, we it's been mentioned because you have to breed a gold chocobo to get it, but the Knights of the Round summon. Oh, yawn. Uh, is an yeah, I mean it's incredible, but it is literally a minute and a half long. You can take that down to thirty seconds on the modern versions. But that's still, <laughs> it's still thirty seconds. That's, that's still quite a long time. Yeah. Oh, but just you... wait for Eden. Okay. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good. But, way. At least you get to press the. Is it a square button on that one? I believe so. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. But the the, the, the summons in Final Fantasy VIII are also very long, but there's actually kind of a gameplay QTs. reason for them to be there. So yeah. Alex Maskill from the forum says it's hard for me to consider Final Fantasy VII outside of its massive formative impact on my personal tastes and cultural touch points. It was the first game I ever played that truly felt like a huge expansive other world you could get lost in, which I suspect is the case for a lot of people my age who love this game unconditionally as I do. And it owes this epic sweep to a beautifully maintained magic trick carried over from the 16-bit days and lost quickly amid increasing detailed 3D representation, its use of abstraction. It communicates a vast scope economically by relying on our imagination and our implicit understanding that we're not seeing a literal view into this world. This was a matter of course back when you couldn't realise a world without with any amount of fidelity, and Final Fantasy VII was just a really good vision version of that common trick. But as something that has been totally lost in the age of high-definition visuals, full-cast voice acting and complex physics engines, it now stands out as this incredible testament to a whole other way of depicting game worlds. To this day, no other game I can think of has both the scale and richness I associate with this game's setting, for the simple reason that much of that scale and richness comes from my own imagination. Every unique background communicates character and place with a beautiful balance of archetype and specificity that makes its world both alien and legible. Part of this is also its pervasive and literate Japanese-ness, and particularly its very Japanese take on Western dystopian fiction. It invites you to use imagination to fill in the characterization of the cast, investing you personally in their struggles, and then toying with that connection to great effect throughout the story. This all makes the adventuring, be it the dungeon crawling or the navigating of the game's many urban areas, engaging, charming and surprising. It was a game with secrets that were real secrets, all done on a scale I'd never seen before. It's also good that it's perfectly acceptable that the combat isn't on the same level as the rest of it. A transplant from the active time battle system of earlier games is perfectly fine, and I'm sure it has a lot of depth. I just find it unexciting. Yeah, it shouldn't... Here's his little dig at the battle system, but I always felt like with the swooping camera and the incredible summon animations, 
And then I look at Final, Final Fantasy. I'm going to get assassinated for this. And then I look at 16-bit JRPGs in Final Fantasy VI and people praising that to the high heavens. And I just think that Final Fantasy VII just impressed the, the hell out of me. And I can't look at the 16-bit games in any kind and put them on the same kind of level visually in terms of awe and impressiveness this game really feels like if you had played and loved Final Fantasy 6 and thought it looked great those aspects like particularly the battle screen the characters you know the 3D models and the camera swooping around in Final Fantasy 7 uh, would have blown me away if I had played 16-bit JRPGs before it was exciting yeah. it was definitely exciting and it definitely felt more modern and more technologically advanced but I wouldn't you know I never thought it was better as such mm. it was uh, it was just a different presentation I was still playing 16-bit games then and I'm still playing them now and I would take generally I would still take 16-bit pixels over PlayStation era low polys but those summons are still cool yeah Jobo Bonobo says, I suppose one reason why it took me so long to try out a Final Fantasy is many of the earlier entries contain my most loathed JRPG mechanic, the random battle. I feel this mechanic should have gone extinct during the Super Nintendo era, so it felt antiquated even in 1997. I like to explore, explore environments and immerse myself in a world, and having it broke up constantly by the abrupt change of music and a new battle screen really takes me out of the experience. However, I slowly got used to this, and the world and story sucked me into such a degree and that one of my biggest pet peeves melted away. Also, the fact that the level progression in this game is nice and fair for the most part, so I never had to stop and grind at any parts, also made random battles far less of a pain than I would otherwise find them. Helping me in tolerating random battles was how much fun I actually found the battle system. Using materia and customising it into different combinations always made for enjoyable experimentation. One of my favourite setups was putting HP Plus along with Counter on Yuffie. Now she can eat up extra hits and attack twice in one turn instead of once. This also has the side benefit of building up your limit meter quickly so you can dish out one of your more powerful attacks in record time. The limit break system itself was interesting, seeing as if you are hit with more powerful attacks. Uh, with a more powerful attack, the limit meter goes up quicker, but get too reckless and your team member could get knocked out. It is this balancing act between staying alive and getting to perform powerful attacks that made this so compelling to me. Finding new materia and learning new limit breaks was always an exciting moment. Seeing my team grow into fearsome warriors throughout the game was a true delight. While the summons are pretty powerful and have saved my behind numerous times, the fact the summon sequence always takes so long would do my head in. Seriously, some of these were so long that I could have read and answered several emails by the time they were finished. When I defeated Sephiroth by using a Bahamut Zero summon while Cloud and Yuffie were on one HP of health, it was one of the most ecstatic victories I have had in gaming in years. Final Fantasy VII, the first game in the series to suggest the origin of monsters, and it really does have a particularly bizarre uh, set of monsters. We were talking about how by... Um, Final Fantasy V it was all getting a bit we've seen all these before so uh, here's another scary wolf or a zombie or something fairly predictable uh, but uh, Shinra experiments with Mako energy on live test subjects led us to lots of very weird kind of oddities as well as this game obviously the technology meant meaning that you've got some kind of robot enemies and automatons you've also got some particularly screwy looking enemies uh and again i'd say the low polys don't always do them a lot of favors but there's some really 
weird and imaginative stuff that you get to fight throughout the game. There's one a house. of the ones that always got yeah. There's, that, there's that's actually exactly what I was going to say. Agrees, and then shoots <laughs> scary at you. And there's also a penis zombie in the uh, in the basement of the Shinra mansion who is the worst enemy in the game because it takes so long for his attack to actually come. And it's just weird looking and creepy. Those weird carroty things with multiple eyes all the way up. There's the clocks that like floating. The guy hanging off a off a ship anchor from the yeah, ceiling. There's a pirate ship. Oh, the anchor floating guy. Yes, ship. yeah. There's there's yeah. some weird stuff in this game. They kind of just yeah, but it also even though it's crazy and you kind of think, well, this is this is absurd. And I agree, you know, already the idea of having random battles with things that aren't visible, apart from in one or two very specific cases, is already did feel like a completely antiquated idea to me by 1997. Uh, the the fact that Final Fantasy VII in particular has this really weird menagerie just adds to its slightly odd atmosphere. Well, I think. let's call it what it is. It's a sense of humour. You know, it's a sense of humour that pervades the design of this game that I'm not sure I've seen elsewhere in the series. Just this mm. zany, anything goes, multicoloured kind of just weirdness um, that elevates it for me personally, especially compared to its immediate uh, uh, success of Final Fantasy VIII. I have to say, um, the enemy designs annoyed me slightly mm-hmm. um, on on revisits, just because I'm I I, I I like things to have a cohesive kind of uh, origin. Like I like that you know Shinra is involved in the origins of a lot of these monsters. That's great. That really that that's something I can get. Why on did board they make with. a rocket firing house though? Yeah. <laughs> Why did they make a rocket firing? house that's that's the question and i get what you're saying i get what you're saying tom like it (laughs) it is funny it is humorous but i think you can still do that and still kind of you know maintain you know the uh the kind of internal logic of the world and and i think some of the enemies break that if if you could if you could um have that fighting on your side it would be a house party Mm, that's true you're fired. Um, um, I do. I also wonder if that those slightly kookier elements are another thing that might have put off people coming to this game, having never played a game of its type before. Just another another thing to kind of push you away a bit. Like you, you're expecting monsters and soldiers to fight, and you get weird blobby things and houses, and yeah. So I think for some people, it's a it's a surreal it element too far it, kind it may of be as i was saying like the first time i saw this game that it's sort of japanese-ness really caught my attention and slightly spooked me out because uh, i just had never seen anything like it before but i don't know that having a weird and wonderful cast of enemies is particularly a, a japanese thing or is it or is it an anime thing no i don't God, know no, i don't no. really I mean, know the context no, no. No, in most 80s games american and british were f- the most surreal mm batches of nuts you could ever imagine. i mean just just look at manic minor or jet set willy or something like that uh yeah just games full of abstract objects and yeah it was it actually felt less like a japanese game in that regard and more like something that would have been made uh western and they, they were talking I about the abstraction is a very good point like there's points in this game where you're running along the back of a train and uh, on each coal car there is a giant beast waiting to fight you, but you can't see it. And then you jump onto the, the car and then each one is this, you know, huge guy with a sword or whatever it is, um, this gunship from earlier in the game. And you just can't do that in later 
uh, later games, especially something like Final Fantasy XV, um, that and that charm stays uh, with me. Mm. Um, side quests, uh, well, yeah, most of them uh, have benefits, but there are a couple of curios, which are the one thirty-fifth scale Shinra soldiers which you can't collect all of, I don't believe, because they're not in the game um, that was abandoned. There's also the the mysterious pipe, isn't there, in Midgar, which has a man in that, that never amounts to anything. There was supposed to be something interesting that was going to happen in there, but it got left in the game and it's still there. But nothing. there's nothing you can do with it. Isn't he, a, um, isn't he one of the clones, Genova yeah. clones? Yeah. yeah, but there was supposed to be an actual... Oh right, yeah. Something okay. that, yeah, something that comes and spins off from that. Anyway, I'm surprised they didn't make a, a whole compilation game just of that story. <laughs> we must crack on. Shabba Snake says, "For me, this game is forever linked to fond memories, old and new. I first played it on Christmas Day. It had been put on my Christmas list after after seeing adverts, which, as it turned out, focused heavily on the cutscenes. So my initial reaction was negative. I'd never played a turn-based game before, so the idea that I had to just stand there and let enemies hit me took some getting used to." But I did, and I spent the rest of that day learning about Mako Energy and getting to know the Avalanche team. I completed the game, with a few setbacks, mainly due to my lack of understanding about how important levelling my characters was, and would occasionally dip back into it over the years. Fast forward, and I'm a grown-up, moving to London with my then-girlfriend and away from my friends and family. That separation made me nostalgic for things I'd take for granted, and I came back to the game again. I can't remember what it was, maybe a piece from the soundtrack or some reference to the game appearing out in the wild, but the moment I heard those first few notes and the camera pulled on first onto Eris and then Midgar, before zooming towards that train pulling in, I was back in my parents' living room floor, surrounded by wrapping paper. Since that connection was formed about six or seven years ago, I returned to Final Fantasy VII every Christmas. It's as much a tradition for me as other festive standards, and as I spend my final few weeks in London beginning my latest run on my phone this time, there's a sense that next year it'll remind me of the life we made down here too. Because that girlfriend and I have moved... Because that girlfriend I moved with is now my wife and we're planning a big journey next year before moving home. And wouldn't you know, I've started to associate the High Winds theme with that journey. The strangest thing about this is that personal link to the game has arguably stopped me seeing it all. I've never gotten involved in extras like the chocobo breeding or collecting the rare summons like Lights of the Round. If the plot doesn't demand it, I've never gone near one of the notorious weapon battles or seen each character's best weapons and limit attacks. I appreciate that they're available, but that's not why I play this particular game. I see the flaws, I willfully ignore substantial parts of it, and most of my playthroughs follow the same path. But Final Fantasy VII is one of my go-to comfort games for reasons beyond anything its mechanics achieve, and for that I'll always have a version of it somewhere for at least those first few hours every December. Nice. On the minigame situation... I think we've already talked about somewhat, but Nick Turner, uh, Nick Turner 13 from the forum says, No longer were we forced into small niches like racing games or platform games or point-and-click adventures. Here came a game that had elements of everything and was in 3D, in a way. 
The graphics, although primitive looking now, were amazing at the time, and the way the game moved from live gameplay to 3D rendered cutscenes was amazing back in 97. There was even snowboarding and betting on chocobo racing, where you could spend hours breeding the ultimate chocobo, which could help you cross the oceans to help get the legendary golden chocobo, which was needed for the ultimate summon. Uh, shout out to the virtual reality chocobo racing and the music that accompanies it. Oh, I will hear that's that in another, my nightmares uh, forever. <laughs> that's another vocal shout as well, isn't there? There's a Yahoo oh, yeah. in the middle yeah, of the... Yeah, there is. In the, yeah, various uh, remixes of the uh, chocobo theme appear throughout. Oh, and that adorable bit where you first go to the chocobo ranch and they do a little dance for <laughs> you. Uh, Mr. Ixalite says, what... Also makes Final Fantasy VII engaging is that its world feels alive with hundreds of small and varied challenges. These can range from huge set pieces like escaping Midgar in an exciting bike chase or simply doing squats in order to win a wig. Individually, these micro-games don't amount to much, but together they're a core part of the game's identity. I've certain, I'm certain I've invested more time in making sure to get a date with Tifa than ever strategizing about materia. And maybe most importantly of all, these kooky little challenges serve to balance the tone of the game and inject it with a persistent sense of fun. Final Fantasy VII contains themes of environmentalism, capitalism, terrorism and more, but and could easily have been a dreary, pretentious ex experience. But thankfully, it's also the kind of game that asks you to march in a parade every once in a while, and where you can find the villains chilling on a beach. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be Final Fantasy VII. And that emphasises uh, that Hojo scene on the beach, does him, yeah. know, really emphasise the fact that they were just having a laugh uh, for yeah. sort of quite a lot of this, to just skewer their own narrative like that. Um, also, I guess when you, uh, <laughs> when you do Yuffie SideQuest, I know I'm talking about Yuffie SideQuest a lot, but that's because I did it this morning. Um, and it's very fresh <laughs> in my mind. But um, in, in there, you go into a bar and just see the Turks kind of hanging out. And um, yeah, towards the end of that, they kind yeah. of do a, a, a little, you know, side eye with you about um, we're not going to go after you this time. If you don't go after us this time. So that's, yeah, I mean, it could have yeah. just been over right. Well, probably not because you would have fight that, fought them and uh, probably won. But, um, you know, it's it's just a, a, a section where they kind of had to, uh, in the way that it was written, they had to have an excuse for why there's no fight here. So, yeah. There's, yeah. there's just, you mentioned yeah. the Turks there. It suddenly occurs to me that there's some really, in we were talking about the different levels of kind of threat and enemy and uh, the Shinra and Jennifer and, and, and Sephiroth. But then there's also this kind of mirror team with the Turks that mirrors your team's progress through the game. Mm. And they're all well-drawn characters. They're quite funny. They've got relationships between each other. Um, and it makes me think, thinking back to all the different Final Fantasy games I've played, I think overall this is my favourite cast of characters just because um, because of that balance. Like we've got a, a, a core cast who really stand out. You know, Red 13 is certainly very different to Barrett and they look different and they talk differently. But then also you've got these layers of bad guys with different sort of nuances to them. And I can't think of another Final Fantasy game that actually sort of takes that much care with the the opposing characters, if you like. Dusk versus Tweak says, at the final dungeon of the game, you're given a save point that you can place anywhere. I had no clue what it was, so I used the item, created a save point and then proceeded to save. 
that's when I realised that it could be my only save point and I was going to have to do the final dungeon and bosses in one go. Without the Knights of the Round Summon or half the party's best limit breaks, it was a terrifying task that made beating the game even more exciting. Uh, I read something that says never use the portable save point because it can cause... Break the game? Bug... Yeah, break, game breaking issues. Oh, really? Apparently. I don't know if maybe that might be fixed on recent versions. I'm not I sure, can't say but... I ever had an issue with that, but it doesn't really surprise okay. me that it could be one. No. Yeah, I've always yeah. used it in every. I've played every single version of this in the old PC version. I've never. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's uh, it's probably just some specific. Yeah, place probably that you shouldn't use it or something. Uh, right. Uh, so yeah, the the end of the game. Um, as I say, I'd never seen it until yesterday, so I didn't really know how the story ended up. Now, unfortunately, subsequent materials mean we know kind of an extent what happens, but actually there is this epilogue in the original, which is 500 years later, showing Midgar kind of overgrown and in, in ruins. But the end sequence doesn't actually make it blatantly clear what's happened in the immediate after, does it? Um, to, no, to me. It, it's just the suggestion that the planet survived and yes. that um, life on the planet survived to such a degree that it was able to reclaim uh, the planet um, from uh, yeah. which is actually in light of the climate reports, the climate change reports that come out uh, and also thinking about games, recent um, volumes uh, mm. uh, like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn uh, about mm. what? we're doing to the planet 20 even 20 years later from uh, 21 years later from 1997 it does it does yeah. make uh, lend that um postscript uh, more weight i feel mm. yeah it's a lengthy end sequence i suppose one of the technical issues uh, not issues but factors that we hadn't mentioned is really the the content of all three discs is almost identical other than the fmv like the all three discs basically contain the gay world obviously there are there are some differences depending on point in the story but the main reason that there is a third disc is because there's tons of fmv and it needs to have you, you can kind of access most of the game world on disc three uh i guess disc two has got the, the the most potential gameplay on it but it doesn't have all the stuff at the start which is uh, can so yeah it's kind of curious and obviously they go up to four discs for the next couple of games on the on the ps1 it's interesting sakaguchi was saying in an interview that he worked he personally worked really hard to try and reorder the data on the discs just to cram stuff in um although he was yeah, talking in relation right. to uematsu was saying about the music and not wanting to slow down the load times mm. and that since it was their first playstation game um yeah they had to really you know work really hard to keep it on three discs and uh, and just cram everything in Colin Alonso says the small country town where near to where I grew up had one video rental shop among the videos. It had three rows with at most 30 PlayStation games. Getting to rent one of those was always a treat. In 1998, my brother and I were looking through these games. There were sports games, racers, platformers and action games. Games that you could tell what they were from box art. Games where it was obvious what you did in them. I was considering Wipeout 2097 when I saw it, a plain white background with the logo Final Fantasy VII. Ten-year-old me clearly missed any hype and did not have a clue what it was. The back of the box, while containing pretty pictures, did not help me understand what this game was. But I was curious. After all, what game needed three discs? Curio curiosity was all I needed, and we rented it. 
Back at our house, we fired it up. A stunning opening followed by being thrown straight into battle. This was our first JRPG and being presented with battle options in a menu was weird to us. We picked it up pretty quickly though. Thankfully, there was a tutorial on Materia. I felt the ending was ambiguous. My brother thought it was abrupt and wanted to know what happened to the party. I thought the holy spell saved the planet but killed the humans, like Bugenhagen warned it might. Kind of strange for a kid to think about the ending that way. Nostalgia affects my thoughts on the game, of course it does. As I said, this was my first story-heavy game, so I can see past its flaws, the translation being the most obvious. To me, the game is a wonderful epic. It is the reason I have, over the last 18 months, played entries 1 through 6, so I could see what came before it. It's still one of my favourite games of all time, and the most important in my gaming history, as it introduced me to the JRPG genre and to story-driven games. So briefly, spin off some further reading. Uh, Airgeiz, well, Cloud and Tifa turned up in the PS1 conversion of Square's unusual uh, arcade brawler, Airgeiz. Don't know if it's canon, though. And then uh, you have the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, which uh, Thomas has already alluded to. So this was a multimedia five-tier thing. Um, the CG movie Advent Children... Before Crisis, that an anime or a manga? Anime. Game, isn't it? Is it a, a mobile game? I could have this. A mobile game feature in the oh, Turks. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, right. Uh, Last Order is the fiction then, is it? Uh, yeah, that's a that's an anime, a video anime. Uh, and then you've got the Vincent game, Dirge of Cerberus, which I've never played, and Crisis Core as well, which was uh, another PSP title. I think the best uh, received, anything... the best received of all of those, I rather is, liked is Crisis, Crisis Core. Core. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that's Cloud, is it? No, it's Zach. Oh, Zach. Actually, yes. Zach. Right. Yeah. The man who Cloud pretended to be in the main story. Although, and, and kind of. I don't need to repeat myself, but just very quickly, like adding it, filling in these gaps. Uh, everything I've learned about all the stories of all of these things, nothing has been additive for me, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. I watched Advent Children a few years back. Jay kindly lent me the Blu-ray. Uh, and it was, not. I will say, it was nice to see those characters and that world rendered in better quality CG. Beyond that, the actual movie left me absolutely cold uh it's got a 7.3 on imdb but over on rotten tomatoes 33 percent fresh josh have you ever watched this uh yeah and um back when i was 16 <laughs> i really liked it <laughs> now and, you have taste uh, uh, it's not the thing is what it is is it's fan service it's just a mm -hmm. collection of scenes going oh remember that bit oh remember that piece of music Oh, Sephiroth. Oh, isn't he cool? But it's much less and, than that because it's so grey and dour. Yeah, but like that. That's that's. But yeah, it, it, it's it's. But I I think when you're kind of sixteen, seventeen, I I think I was really on board for that. I was really on board for just like being catered to so directly um ignoring the fact that there's not much of a story um in in the actual film and now i've watched it with more you know mature eyes i it's just i can't 
I can't get on board with just the nonsensical kind of incoherent narrative and um, the the action sequences where look I know I know it's anime and and I know physics is going to be <laughs> a challenge, uh, uh, a a challenge. but when when people are actually giving each other boosts up in midair <laughs> my brain just completely turns off yeah. and uh, but, I, my ability to take anything seriously goes out but, the window yeah it's a bit it's but a bit it has rubbish. a fantastic soundtrack it has one of my favorite pieces of all time it's a uh, almost gregorian chant by uh, uematsu um it's got that piece has got different names but you can you have to search out the soundtrack but it's got some some of the best orchestrally recorded versions of the original tunes as well mm. and it's yeah. why because of Matsu's at this at the time of recording has taken a sort of leave of absence from work because he is mm. unwell and it is unclear what he's unwell with and the remakes on mm. the way uh, uh, but he's a freelancer you you know you kind of i don't know you you want him to be there with a much bigger music budget to see what he does with the remake score, um, mm. but in the interim, the Advent Children uh, score is is lush and and uh, varied. Actually, it's really really good. Will returns from the forum says in many ways Square never got over Seven, chasing the sugar high of the game with mercenary spin-offs, dubious full-length films, and one ill-fated attempt to reverse engineer Cloud's appeal a decade later. <laughs> in 2018, I'm not sure we really need a multi-part DLC-laden remake, but as the man says, there ain't no getting off train of this train we're on. No matter how it turns out, Seven belongs to the fans who have made the game their own, with updated versions like The Reunion and albums like Mega Ran's Black Materia that remix Uematsu's music to tell a different story about kids growing up in poverty and struggling to live in a society that devalues their lives and dreams. It would be easy to make a cute comparison to the climax of the game itself. Seven reinvented the genre and may or may not have a place in the new world. But replaying today, I see a game that continues to inspire and entertain, and I hope every generation of players has a chance to explore this world for themselves. Uh, Cloud, of course, turned up in Super Smash Brothers for Wii U and 3DS, I presume, as well, <clears throat> back in 2015, and is still there in Ultimate because everybody's here. Sage Plus Onion Knight, just uh, four interesting points from Sage and Onion. My childhood obsession with the game was such that I would often imitate the jumping animation. <laughs> when I was asked to pick a number in a primary school math class, another pupil audibly groaned when I picked seven. A huge part of my connection to this game was growing up in the early days of the internet and being fascinated by with the bizarre and rarely true rumours of secrets hidden within the game, many of which, of course, involved being able to revive Eris alongside some truly, truly odd ones. I'm sure one involved being able to unlock Sid's rocket as a vehicle to explore outer space. I was mortally terrified of Sephiroth. I still hold up the Shinra HQ sequence as one of my favourite moments in gaming, just for that truly chilling and eerie atmosphere. My fear of Sephiroth was such that I once woke up terrified because I dreamt that I found his driving license lying on the floor. <laughs> but he couldn't, there's not a car on earth that would fit his uh, Masamune giant sword in it. Thought you were going to say you his can hair. Clip it to the side. <laughs> uh, the tiny reference to my Bloody Valentine's 1991 album Loveless in the game's opening introduced me to the band that revolutionized my music taste as a teenager. It's probably worth mentioning that coincidentally the track touched from that album could easily sit alongside Nobuo Uematsu's soundtrack. Oh, I have to check that out. Mm. 
so we haven't and won't have time for every piece of correspondence we received on this game. Please do check out, uh, as well as things like the Voices of the Livestream and the Legend of Final Fantasy VII book, do go and check out the Cana Rinse Forum. You'll find some more feedback and correspondence there. I'll try to rattle through a bit more uh, before we go. K-Sub-Zero, this is just uh, a relatively recent impression, although from 2009. Uh, I couldn't get on with Final Fantasy VII in the 10 or so hours I spent with it when playing it for the first time in 2009. The latter entry Final Fantasy games are often set in futuristic environments that tend to make me depressed instead of dreamy. People shooting each other over issues involving corrupt corporations and industrial pollution certainly feels chillingly final at times, but not so much like a fantasy. I think that one major reason as to why this game became such a cultural milestone is that it captured a lot of kids' imaginations by way of coming out early in the life cycle of such a popular platform coupled with a handful of heavy narrative turns which certainly opened a lot of teary eyes to the possibilities of narrative driven games in a way that Tekken Crash Bandicoot and Gran Turismo simply couldn't hope to match that's very smart yeah and smart I, I don't think I don't think any yeah I don't think anyone would any fans would probably deny that you know a lot of the love for this game is is circumstantial rather than you know it, it it's a it's a planets aligning thing i suppose in a way only link says uh, i first got around to playing final fantasy 7 in 2012 when i picked up a ps3 i found the start to be quite a shock as it's quite a contrast in visuals and pace from the triple a games of the last console generation but after leaving midgar everything started to click I feel like Final Fantasy VII is a game where the overall experience is more than the sum of its parts. Even 15 years after release, the quality of the title was clear to see. My positive experience with Final Fantasy VII piqued my interest in older titles, and since 2012 I've gone back... 2012, I'd gone back and played dozens of fantastic older games I missed out on at the time. So even though I was late to the party, Final Fantasy VII has had a huge influence on the kind of games I play and enjoy. I recently replayed it on Vita over a few months' worth of lunch breaks, and it's as good in 2018 as it was in 2012. An all-time classic, full of charm, tragedy, humour and humility. Magical Isopod returns with, Unfortunately, the game is often remembered in pop culture for its giant swords and spiky hair, more than what it achieves as a literary work. Yes, the translation is bad, Barrett is a racist stereotype, <laughs> and the cross-dressing scene is cringe. It has all these little blemishes. But Final Fantasy VII took the world by storm, and that was no accident. This game has affected my spirituality. It helped shape what my teenage brain defined as cool. It was my first introduction to themes of anti-authority and reverence for nature. It's a very special game to me. Jobo Bonobo says, like many, Final Fantasy VII was my first introduction to the Final Fantasy series. Unlike many, I finished it just this year. I was an N64 kid growing up, so I missed out on the world of JRPGs for quite some time, and it was with the DS where I became acquainted with that genre. Since this series has such an immense reputation, I felt it was only right to try out an entry at some point, and why not start with one of the most popular and beloved ones? It says a lot that I had so much to talk about regarding a game that I had no nostalgia whatsoever for. I think that despite a few little niggles, Final Fantasy VII is a wonderful experience with an addictive battle system, beautiful music, unfortunately forgettable locales, fun story and memorable characters. It's gotten me to want to try out the rest of the series, such as 6 and 9, and made me appreciate why people even to this day have such love for it. For making JRPGs mainstream alone, it will always have my gratitude. 
Madsock says, this is out without doubt one of my favourite games of all time. I don't think I will ever get tired of it. Welsh Muzzy says, this is my favourite game ever. I just love it. I may even theme my next tattoo around it. <laughs> Leah, you have a. We know you have a Triforce. Have you got any? Have you got a Final Fantasy Seven anywhere on your body? I or don't. Any of you? um, the one that I've considered is actually from Final Fantasy Eight. So uh, we'll we'll get back to that, but I, not, I've not got yet. A, I've got a Comet sticker uh, on the back of my computer. Uh, close. Not, <laughs> I'm not ready to. T- yeah, not I'm not quite. ready to stain my body, but uh, close enough. Not quite the levels of commitment <laughs> we're looking for. <laughs> Uh, Rob25x says, one of my favorite games of all time. I can, I still think of it often, even 20 years or so later, yet I have little desire to go back to play it. For me, it's like all games in the Final Fantasy series, best in its time and hasn't aged well. One thing about Final Fantasy VII that remains timeless for me is the soundtrack, which I still listen to regularly. Why do I say Final Fantasy VII has aged badly? Final Fantasy X improved a lot visually, bringing in voice acting, etc., etc., we talk about the Final Fantasy X voice acting uh, <laughs> next year. Final Fantasy VII Advent Children showed how Final Fantasy VII needed to be updated visually and remade. And Crisis Core, Dirge of Cerberus, Chocobo Racing and all the spin-off games ruined Final <laughs> Fantasy a bit by taking it in too many directions. I've since played 13 and 13-2 for over 200 hours Yikes. each and connect myself with them more now than any of the older games. Also, other games have made a big, big impact since Final Fantasy VII, such as Shenmue, The Elder Scrolls, The Fallout games, etc. Would I like to play the original PlayStation 1 Final Fantasy VII today? Not really. Would I like to play a Final Fantasy VII remake on the PS4? Absolutely. Whether the magic of Final Fantasy VII could be reignited in 2018, I'm not sure. Maybe they've left it too late. An amazing game in its day, a timeless soundtrack, and a true work of art. But unfortunately, not the same game in 2018. I just looked it up because I I thought that can't be right, but it totally is. Shenmue came out two years after Final Fantasy VII. Yep. Wow. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And finally, Technical says there's no other piece of entertainment media that has ever quite captivated me in the same way Final Fantasy VII did. While I often cannot recall locations and moments in game I only played a year ago, Final Fantasy VII is permanently burned in, despite me first playing through it 20 years ago. It's crazy that a game holds the power to transport me back to a certain time in my life, but Final Fantasy VII really can do this. It's pretty much indescribable how highly I regard it. Uh, that, That chimes with me a lot. And the weirdest thing is it's the only game that I can play in my head whilst trying to fall asleep. As in, <laughs> I can remember every screen and I can't remember every single like detail, but I, you know, I know which soldier in the Shinra Tower to, to steal carbon bangles off and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... There's something about the pace of the game. You can watch like speed runs in the background whilst you're doing work um, as this sort of meditative thing. It's a very weird game. There's something about the time it was made, the age I was or whatever, that, that clearly Technikai also um, vibes with this, that, that it's just in there. It's just in my memory. It's in my brain. And, uh, the way that whatever open world game I played since then, just not. Yeah. Soft, impressionable brains, um, but no. I, as I say, I was twenty-five, and uh, and it it does have qualities. Uh, it, it may be partly that we've been reminded of it so much because because it became so famous, but maybe it's just got 
things about it. All these strange elements came together. Anyway, three word reviews in brief. At Kane and Rince, follow us, do. So, Kenny Young says, too many battles. Scott Lamont says, never finished it. Dave Salad says, could not finish. Pure Blue Octopus says, didn't age well. Run Level 6 says, crazy complicated plot. Joe 81, a step forward. Ashton Herman says, genuine system seller. Tom Hewlett says, took RPGs mainstream. Mac Stat says, a first grand adventure. Fuzzy Dan says, blew my mind. David Geezer says, great opening hours. Bear Fish Pie says, red dad redemption. Good. <laughs> That's good. Quasimod says, Eris dies spoilers. <laughs> David Musgrove says, she can't die. Bad Zo. Bad TZMZO. Bugenhagen was right. Scott Bodenhammer says, one winged angel. Eric Mickles says, uh, another Uematsu masterpiece. Samtik says, enemy skill materia. Nick Turner says, chocobos materia memories. Colin Alonso says, still a favourite. Ben Parry says, flaws basically irrelevant. <laughs> and Sam Sherritt says, life-changing experience. Nice. Thank you, everybody. Uh, to summarise then, I'm going to say that uh, this needs to be brief to spare the sanity of our editors and listeners. But, Leah, I think you probably go first. It, that sounds about right. I I, I will be brief, but um, the none of us are ever, none of us on this show are going to ever really be able to separate our uh, feelings for this game from the nostalgia factor and i think that most people who are playing it again these days or playing it or not playing it again and have just uh, or have only played it uh in the past are are going to be likely the same and i think that's fine i don't think that that diminishes the experience of the game any less in fact i think it probably increases it because if a game can mean so much to somebody at whatever point in their life that it's going to continue being that special, then I think that's a really great thing. Um, Final Fantasy VII is not my favorite in the series, but it's it's a great game even still. And I think that I would still say that it's worth playing for the first time now. Now, maybe not if you are not a JRPG, at least... Uh, at, at least if you like them all right i won't even say if you're a fan but um you know playing playing one of the updated versions that has the options to do things like the three times speed or whatever i i didn't do that in my most recent playthrough even though it was there um just because it didn't quite feel right to me but it's nice that it's there uh to kind of get around some of those things that might not have aged quite as well um but yeah i i think that um it's it's really hard to be objective about a game that has been this impactful for so many people uh but uh i i i still enjoy it i still think that it has a really special place for me in my kind of gaming history and i still would recommend it with like i said some caveats but uh, overall yes absolutely yeah so i also do have nostalgia i was a little older than these guys when i first played it so it probably shouldn't have made as much of an impression on my slightly older and more cynical brain. But actually, it really is 
for me an incredibly memorable title. I think it is partly to do with the the leap in tech that it represented and the way it used that tech but it's also just a riot of imagination and yeah the story beats have become kind of cliches and you know, some of them you know are even you know things we've seen before or or whatever but actually that just that blend of the music and the characters and the locations and that uh, that really rather deep battle system with the materia all adds up to yeah just a, a really a fine time and in fact i enjoyed it this time way more than i was expecting to going back to it i thought it would be much more uh, much more apparent what a difficult kind of development it had had how disjointed it was it's got it's got a few bugs and mistakes and and oddments and oddities in it but actually it all kind of piles on together and it feels like creative chaos that led to this kind of particularly this very special title that perhaps uh, they never quite uh, matched in terms of its yeah just sheer madness um, in any any of the games before or since and I think that's I think being memorable is so important to me like beyond being you know slick or good in some ways uh, because these are the things we keep with us uh, so yeah playing the ps4 version where you can turn those random battles off if you want for a bit and speed up things like the summons uh, is a great way to play it same version on steam bear in mind also that those random encounters were dialed down massively compared to the original japanese version uh, where the encounter rate is uh, is much more frequent uh, than it is on all subsequent versions imagine that um so yeah i do still recommend it and I think it's absolutely for whatever whatever the reasons are it is a cultural icon and uh, a touchstone for the medium of video games and uh, should be experienced uh, by anyone who has a passion for the digital arts josh one wing muffin (laughs) (laughs) um so having having now played um the majority of the games in order um I don't think Final Fantasy VII is quite as slick um and just perfectly formed as Final Fantasy VI. However, I think the highs are higher for me. I think overall um the soundtrack is just incredible. Like if there's one part of this game that I think just kind of stands out and I go, wow, that they just, Uematsu just delivered above and beyond with the soundtrack. I think it's incredible. And ultimately because of all these different factors, this is still my favorite um, in the series and, and, and one of my favorite games of all time. Of course, like that, like, like Leah said before, like this is wrapped up in this game being incredibly formative for me. Like um, this is important beyond just being a game I really enjoy. This woke me up to the medium and, and I will always owe Final Fantasy VII for that. Um, I've discovered JRPGs after it that I, I think I prefer more. I, I never saw the persona series coming um so yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah leah got that no one else did Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) i i I was there with you yeah um 
but um, yeah, I, I do recommend it. I think I, I would probably suggest, you know, if you've never played a Final Fantasy game before, probably check out Six first, um, just because it's a slightly smoother, less rocky road. Um, but yeah, Seven, I think Seven still holds up flaws and all. Nice. Well, I think we know that Tom likes it, but uh, tell us how much. Uh, well, uh, copy and paste a lot of what? Leon, well, a lot of what, a lot of what all, all of you guys said, like uh, especially Leon, what you said about uh, games being memorable, that being an incredibly important thing. And uh, Josh said about uh, it sort of influencing and waking him up. Um, I really feel that. And a lot of the correspondents as well have, have sort of said things that could have come out of my mouth in, over the course of this uh, epic recording. But this is my... 500 hour game this is my reg you know semi-regular 100 percent game my comfort game um the one that i loved from seeing literally just a two-page preview uh, a couple of months before release and just being captivated by it and and um whilst i i loved the game and and formed friendships around it and uh it's huge it definitely woke me up to video games in general storytelling uh, in some ways it's my Star Wars and for some reason I keep bringing up Star Wars but I do know that Star mm. Wars was a big touch point for that team particularly creatively and in trying it's even more apparent in the earlier Final Fantasy games. yes yeah, yeah. Um, the the thing that that carried on for me though I you know I don't play it as much anymore um, I really liked the the PS4 port and those kind of speedy things to get through the game but it takes away something uh, to be able to just sort of race through this thing that you cherish, and like I say, I can I can pretty much replay the game in my head, uh, uh, and whilst I'm trying to get to sleep, I, I know so much of it, and I really love watching speed runs and and speed running a JRPG doesn't make any sense, but it's still quite a relaxing thing to do. Um, but the thing that stays with me is the music. It, it just it woke me up to video game music. I work in video game music now. I work for a record label that puts out video game music. Um, one of my most fun things to do recently was interview uh, a classical arranger who did a Final Fantasy VII symphony, the Final Symphony, the Final Fantasy VII um, centerpiece symphony, and we did uh, a couple of interview pieces for the for the label blog, and we dug out all of the different Uematsu tunes that he'd put in there, and so I got to dig back into the score um, and realise how incredible some of the even the off the beaten path um, cues are in that soundtrack, just. Like I say, melody, uh, counterpoint, instrumentation, uh, pacing, and um, the way that uh, emotionally the music makes you feel just from the motorcycle race to the uh, going out into the world map and uh, going into calm, going to the Chocobu farm. The, if you just listen to those cues in order, if you know the game at all, you can play the game in your head, just listen to the music and it'd be still a rich and emotional experience. So whilst I love the game, um, I, I don't know whether I recommend it to, to someone. It depends on who the person is. It's I, I can't see it objectively as a video game anymore. I just can't. And I guess that comes from ever since I started min-maxing and 100%ing it with guides early on. At that stage, I lost the ability to judge how someone coming to it reasonably fresh. No such thing as an objective review anyway. Indeed, so yeah, it yeah, matter. yeah. But particularly because this is my one of those games, I can see it even less. Um, 
but it's the music that sort of lives in my soul that I, I play pieces from it regularly. I literally sit down at a musical instrument and play it for pleasure um, and have tried to work out some of the tunes and, and recreate them and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's it, the game means a lot to me, a hell of a lot. Uh, all throughout loving video games, this is, this is number one. But the music lives on way above and... Um, and I really hope whatever illness Mr. Imatsu uh, is currently working through mm. that he he makes it through okay and makes it to that remake and uh, whatever else the remake brings, I don't have high hopes for sort of whether it will go down that advent children of just taking the hyper anime elements of Final Fantasy VII and, and losing some of what I love about it. Uh, but even so, um, we'll get a reimagining of some of my favourite music of all time uh, and that would be very valuable. And that's what I look forward to the most, I think. All right. So we probably could have made a 19-hour podcast about this particular game. This will have been a long one. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Josh, Leah and Thomas, as well as all our correspondents. Uh, apologies to those that we couldn't fit in. We fitted in tons, as you heard. Uh, Thank you to editor Sean and thank you to editor Jay and apologies. Sorry, I guess we always Sean. Knew this was like this was always likely to be a long one uh, because it is such a, an iconic game. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening and throughout this year's podcasts since January. Don't know when you found us. Maybe you've been listening for seven years. Maybe you've been listening for a couple of months. But thank you anyway. If you've enjoyed this podcast and uh, appreciate the amount of effort, work and love that goes into it, please subscribe, rate, review wherever you can best of all patreon.com slash cane and rinse for your dollar a month or more if you prefer you can get every one of these podcasts a week earlier and in extended form in many cases no doubt including this one as well as an exclusive monthly mini cast next time in issue 351 i can't tell you because i don't know at this point but hopefully I will know in the next couple of days. We're going to take a few much-needed weeks off, but do keep your eye on our social media for the Volume 8 podcast listing announcement. And in the meantime, don't forget, we're not going away entirely because we have two other podcasts, Sound of Play and The Sausage Factory. So subscribe, rate, review, listen to those. Until then... <laughs>